Welcome to this message from Life Assembly, a thriving church in the northwest suburbs of Minneapolis. Please visit us online at lifemn.org for more information. And now join us as we pursue Jesus together. The last, the last few weeks we've been really looking at, um, well, I, I started when we had 19 weeks left of the year and we talked about what it means to be a disciple, and, and can we as a church start making good discipleship practices before Christmas time comes? And then we're just in the mood because, oh, it's that time of year. We should now get our hearts on track and maybe, maybe wait till the first of the year, and then we're, oh, I'm going to read my Bible and do those things. Say, no, no, no. Let's create a lifetime of praise and worship and discipleship. Let, let's start out good practices. So we've been building on this, and uh, we are in... Uh, the book of Revelation, and we, we are looking at the seven churches that Jesus had specific words for. And let me tell you, this goes right along this line in this path, but it also does something that, have you, have you guys ever just really wanted to finish something and you know it was kind of being prolonged? Maybe you have a project around the house or something you wanted to do, and you just didn't finish it? Don't look at each other, please. Oh, I'm looking, I'm seeing some of your, you know, looking at it. Don't do that. And um, I, I had started in, in spring, and so we got into Easter, and we were in the Gospel of John, and we were looking at the Johannian literature, and so the books of the Bible that John had written, and we got to 1st, 2nd John, and uh, Pastor Jim preached on 3rd John this summer, and then we took a break because I was like, Lord, I need to read more. I need to research more in Revelation. And then all of a sudden, we started getting further and further, and I'm like, I need to finish this thing. I need to finish this thing, and I love that it goes along with where we are um, as a church. Anyway, so um, I pray that, uh, that if you've come into the book of Revelation with some of the things that, the, that Revelation carries, you know, some people, when they think of Revelation, there's wonder of what's going to happen, and there's a little bit of excitement there. Uh, some people, there's just curiosity, what, is, what does all this mean? For some, there's confusion, and uh, there's also avoidance, and there is, for some, obsession, and there's also a lot of fear. And in 2 Timothy 1, 7, it says, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. So if we know that this is the spirit of God that is coming before us and saying, hey, this, this is not the spirit that I'm giving you, we can rest assured that when we read the book of Revelation, it is not meant to paralyze us in fear. Can, can I have some agreement with that? Does, that? does that make sense? It just doesn't go along with the character of God. I, I will argue that Revelation was never meant to be a book of fear, but one of hope, one of love, one of mercy, grace, judgment, and triumph. So we're going to see that there is a blessing just by reading this book. It, right away in the very beginning, those who read and those who hear, you will be blessed. Now, why would Jesus tell John to read a book that's going to bring great blessing to a people that wouldn't understand any of it. That doesn't make any sense. Unless he was writing to them things that were happening at that time. Now, I just there's a, a couple of things that we need to think of. First of all, the book of Revelation is a writing that is made up of three different main genres. One is apocalyptic, one is prophetic, and the other is a letter, which we see it's a letter 
to the seven churches. And at that time, apocalyptic writing was actually quite popular. There are a lot of secular writings and things that were apocalyptic. So it's not like it's a huge, huge surprise. So here are a few things that I want us to keep in mind as, as we begin to look at this. First of all, there are two types of people when it comes to uh, revelation. Uh, there is the one who avoids. There's the one who just says, well, I'm just going to leave that alone. It's not for me. And then you got your crazy person. Some of you have met that crazy person, right? Every single conference, every single book, they're, they're there. They're, and the, every leader, they've said this is who the Antichrist is. And then you've got the person who doesn't care at all, and they're just trying to stay away from it altogether. So let's try and find a, somewhere around this area. Is that, is that okay? Can we, can we try and, and do that a little bit? So a person could literally drown in the assumptions that have been made about the details of this book. And somehow... Man, after people have made a name for themselves and written books that have been proven false, they then rewrite their books, and somehow people keep buying them. So at this point, I don't think we can blame the author. You can take that where you want to take it. <laughs> you can't be mad at them. You're buying the books. All right, I said it. So I think it's safe to assume that, especially after we look into this, that much of Revelation has actually already taken place. And this isn't heresy, Jim. He told me he was ready to shout out heresy today. <laughs> and and I, I believe it's very simple because the Bible already tells us this. Uh, Revelation 1.19 says, What you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. Okay? Let me say that again. What you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. And then if, you wanna, if you're one of those people that like to look ahead, like what's going to happen, so you get your Bible and you go to the last chapter, and you, you look at it and you go, okay, what's, what's happening? And you can see that it says that I am coming quickly. I am coming quickly. That means that he has not come yet, but it's going to be quickly. So I, this is my super fancy um, timeline rope that I've uh, made for you. Um, I've got some green tape. So let's just look at this as from Genesis up through the rest of the Old Testament here. And then we have this little green thing. What, what is this? Well, there's about 400-year gap that's in between the writing of the New Testament and the last book of the Old Testament. And so this was a time of quiet. This was a time where the word of the Lord had not been going forth, and we do not have prophetic or writings that, that we look at. Now, was God still speaking? Were people still writing things? Sure, of course, of course, but it was not the word of the Lord that was going forth. And then we have Jesus bursts into the scene, and then we have the whole first century, what the Lord came at the right time in the right place with the right language. Let me tell you, the Greek has so much more colorful language that helps us today with interpretation. And then we have this. It keeps going. And I, I'm just, I made this to show that we are still in this time. So kind of like that 400 years here between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there was kind of this gap. And so after Jesus came, he gave us a word, and that word is, I'm coming quickly. And that quickly, we have been in that gap. 
And we have been waiting and waiting. Just like the first coming of the Messiah came and we had Jesus, we are now waiting for the second coming. That is for Christ to come back for his church. And that's where we're at, okay? And there's no prediction, okay? We're not predicting who and where and when. We just know that he's coming. And what the scripture tells us is that we are supposed to be prepared. We are supposed to be prepared for his coming. This is our blessed hope, Jesus Christ. Since Jesus has not reappeared for his second coming yet, we are here and we have his word and we get to see this really cool picture into Jesus giving specific words to his church and to different churches. And I can tell you what, we need to look at what he's saying to the churches and see how it applies to us because it does. It really applies to us today. I believe this is a book of love, that it is the unveiling of who Jesus Christ is. So I looked at some different interpretations. You can just kind of follow me with some of these that I'm, I'm doing here. <clears throat> of the way that Revelation, just the, the name of it, has been interpreted through the years. So I, I looked up, and, and I, I have a lot of resources that I use for this, from Bibles of different versions to different commentaries to Gordon Fee's book on Revelation, who's just a tremendous theologian. So um, a lot of these are just a lot of research I've done over quite a while here. <clears throat> so the Apocalypsis Isus Christo. This is the, the Greek form of what is the title of the book of Revelation. So how do we interpret it? Well, here's some of the ways that it's been interpreted. A revelation of Jesus Christ. A revelation about Jesus. A revelation from Jesus. What Jesus reveals. I like this one, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. What, man, that just makes, you know, just, man, I don't know, it just makes my mind really think about it differently. And then this one, um, a writer said, this is how I would interpret it. And I just thought it was really cool. The dramatic disclosure of God's will. This is, this is what the book of Revelation is about. And so how, how did it come to us? Um, well, we, we can see that the source or the unveiling, this disclosure, first comes from God the Father who, who speaks to Jesus. And we have this word from Jesus and an angel to John. This is John, the gospel of, the, how did he describe himself in the gospel? The one that Jesus loved. I initially had Who's talking to us? The one that Jesus loved. But then I thought that was too wordy. So I took that off. And where are we in this? We are the reader and hearer. This is us reading Revelation. So then we sort of have to look at authorship. Okay, we, are, we already talked about authorship. When? When did it happen? So most agree that this happened in the 90s. Uh, why? Well, because, not 1990s, okay? He was not part of the grunge movement. This is the 90s, Okay. And what, what we know about this is Domitian, at that time, he had sent John to the island of Patmos. And could you jump to that um, map for me? So you can see there's a little black part there named Patmos there. And then you can see the seven churches. It's, it's so cool. It's in order. In your Bibles, it goes in order exactly like that when you map it out. It is so cool. So this is like, hey, messenger, you're going to take this word. God gave me this word, and you are going to go and bring these letters. One, two, three, just right through. 
And I, I just think, what a, what a powerful statement of this. And when Domitian died, that means that those who were exiled, like John, who was preaching the gospel and got sent there with all the rest of the criminals, he got to come back to Ephesus. Now, emperor worship was a huge deal. And this is really quite disturbing as a Christian to hear. But Domitian, they actually had this full place for him there in Ephesus. And the title for Domitian of emperor worship was Our Lord and God. That's what he was called. I mean, the, the amount of worship that went towards him was very, very extravagant. And the cities, the way that it worked in Rome, were the, the more that you did, the more opulence that you showed for Rome, the more you could be rewarded by Rome itself. And so the cities would be rewarded. Now, what's interesting is that um, the Jews had this little deal worked out with Rome where they didn't have to burn sacrifices to the emperor. They got around it. They switched it and said, how about when we sacrifice, we will sacrifice to our God, so Yahweh, right? To, and we will, we will sacrifice, but we will make a sacrifice for you. See, see how they kind of played with that a little bit? And so Rome, got, okay, we're, we're not totally letting you off the hook, so you're still um, putting something out on behalf of, of the emperor, right? So that's good. Well, what happens when the Christians come into the scene? First of all, the Christians were looked as, at a sect of the Jews, and so they were a part of that. They could just make a sacrifice on behalf, uh, like to God, but then the Jews said, and we're going to see this a little bit later on, they, the Christians called uh, the Jews the synagogues of Satan because they were so against the Christians. And what they did is the Jews went to them and said, no, 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 they're not a part of us. The Christians are separate, so they should have to make sacrifices. So when we start seeing that, man, there is a battle going on between the Christians and the Jews, not necessarily fighting and killing, but there is, there is like this tension going on, and we see that the Christians are being killed and not the Jews, we can see why. This world was totally against the Christians. And here we are. And here are these churches trying to survive in this tension and in this environment, and we get letters directly from Jesus. So what was the biggest threat against Christians? Was it the sword? No. No, the biggest tension was moral concession. When you read the New Testament over and over again, what you see is that the Christians who started to wear, they started to repeat and do what was happening in Rome and bringing that into the church was the biggest threat to Christianity. And if you can't see the connection between us here in the United States of America and Rome, I think you need to think again, because we're in the exact same place. How much are we bringing in of this world into the church and into our own lives? And this is why this matters. Let's um, do one more thing here before we start reading, because I, I just I want you to be able to, as you read, be able to think of what these are specifically. <clears throat> Now, we got on the left side, we've got the scriptures on here. Gordon Fee started writing some of these out, and, and I made them into this to make them a little bit easier to look at, but it's also it's just writing scripture. You can look them up. Um, so who is the one like a son of man? Well, it tells us 
in Revelation 1, 17, 18, we're going to read in a second, Jesus, who is dead and is now alive, okay? So we know that. It tells us. The seven golden lampstands. Okay, you start reading, going, what are these lampstands? What's going on? Well, you get to the end of chapter 1, which we will, and it's the seven churches to whom John is writing. He tells us. I'm very grateful for that. Again, uh, chapter 1, verse 20, what are the seven stars? Well, there's seven angels or messengers of the seven churches. Okay, so this is part where I can't give you full confidence in what it means, okay? So some believe that there is an angel that represents the church, okay? And some, the way that the Greek works is that a messenger could also be like the prophet or it could also be um, like a pastor who is giving the word. And so this here, I, I can't tell you specifically, okay? Wish I could, but I just can't. Uh, chapter 7, 14. What are the numberless multitude? Well, those who have come out of the great tribulation. When you, when you read that, it says there's this group of people that would not take the sign. It would not uh, bend to what the government and leadership was trying to make them do, and they wouldn't take it. And it says that this, there's a great multitude of people who are this numberless multitude. Okay, well, who's the great dragon? Well, we know that it's Satan, and it spells it out very, very easily. What are the seven heads of the beast and the great harlot? Well, don't get mad at me because people have been trying to name this for a long time. But at that time, everybody knew exactly who it was. And uh, your Bible will say the seven hills or it's going to say the seven mountains. Well, that is Rome. That, that's, all, that's how it has been described through history. And so the writing of this at that time in those years, they knew exactly what they were saying. To us today, sometimes that can be a little bit harder. So let's open up. Would you start Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, please? Thank you. That would have been hard to read. <clears throat> the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servant what must soon take place, he made known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies, so who is it? John, it tells us right here, who testifies everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophet prophecy and bless are those who hear it and take to heart what is written because the time is near all right you're blessed we are being blessed together john to the seven churches in the province of asia grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne okay seven spirits what on earth are those seven spirits well if you go to isaiah chapter 11 verses 2 and 3 this is the very common agreement on what he is talking about. The spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge, and the spirit, the fear of the Lord. These are the seven spirits of God. Okay, would you go ahead and continue from where we were? And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of this earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. And the church said, Amen. 
Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all people on the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. That is very much in agreement with uh, when Moses went to the leaders in Egypt. I am, when he said, I am. I, John, again, here it is, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that our hour in Jesus was on the island of Patmos. This is how we know where he was. Because the word of God and the testimony of Jesus on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, now this is, it, it identifies that this is directly from Jesus. Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, uh, Thy. Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned and saw the seven churches, and among the lamps and churches was someone like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in the furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. These are these messengers. These are these angels. And coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. So this is where we, where we get the, the word of God is like a two-edged sword, right? His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed on his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forevermore and I hold the keys of death and Hades. And the church here should say, Amen. Right, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. This is the last verse here. The mystery of the seven stars, this is what he tells us, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. It's nice when he tells us, isn't it? then you don't need people trying to come up with things and, and make things up. Ephesus was, it's right, it's right on the Aegean Sea. It was a huge and important city to Rome. They project that there was probably 250,000 people um, at that time. It was at that time one of the seven wonders of the world. The temple um, of Artemis was there. And that, they believe, was over 100,000 square feet of room. It, it overtook the city of Ephesus. They did banking there. They did commerce there. This was a main city center of where they were. Now, we're going to be jumping in, and what we're going to end with, if you have your bulletin, you'll see that I wrote Smyrna on there as well. There's no way we're getting to the second church today, so we're going to just look at Ephesus for a little bit. And uh, so we're going to read this quickly, and then we will um, talk about what directly he is saying to us. So could you go to um, Revelation chapter 2. Did I have it on there for you? No, I don't. You can make it up. I'm just going to read to you if you have your Bibles. It's Revelation chapter 2. To the angel 
of the church in Ephesus write? So this is in red letters. This is Jesus telling John, this is what you write directly to this church. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars, which are the angels, in his right hand and walks among the seven churches, or the golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, and you have tested those who call to be um, apostles, but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. Who are the Nicolaitans? Well, we don't know a whole lot, but we do know this. They're compared to Balak and Balaam. And if some of you remember, or you know that book in the Bible that talks about the talking donkey and trying to make Balaam stop from going. Balak saw Israel getting stronger and stronger, and he was afraid. So he got this seer, this, this guy who would, whoever he blessed would be blessed, whoever he cursed would be cursed. And Balak tried to hire him and tried to say, I need you to curse this Israel because they are, they're going to take over. And every time Balaam, the seer, or this um, really somebody who was not of the one true God who listened to demons, every time he tried to curse Israel, he blessed them instead. And Balak started saying, I'll give you more money and more money and more money. And he couldn't. Balaam was prohibited by God, and all he could do was bless and bless and bless. Well, why is this bad, and why is this group being compared to them? Because then they said, well, this isn't working, so we're going to send our women to start being with the Jewish men, and then we're also going to say to them, hey, you should also worship our gods. And this came because Balaam wanted this money. He was going to find a way to get paid, and it worked, and it worked. And so what God is doing is he's saying, hey, listen, you opposed these evil people that were trying to come into your ranks and trying to come in and profit from you, from trying to bring in sexual adultery and things that would tempt you and get you away from the things of the Lord. And he goes, I approve. Thank you for, for not bringing them in. Thank you for hating that sin. So they did that super, super well. Now, there were also these good deeds. Isn't it amazing that you can be right and wrong at the same time? When, when you look at all the things that the church of Ephesus was doing, it was super good. All these deeds, all these actions, it, it really outweighed, in our minds, in our human minds, it outweighed the bad, except Jesus looks at the heart. And he's saying, wow, you're doing all these things, and I, I approve, but, but something is growing cold in your hearts. 
You can be right and still be wrong. I think they got a little lost in their good deeds. And I think that it should also be of good news for those who have persevered in this place. That Jesus knows your works. He's not forgotten what you have done. He has not forgotten the things and the way that you have given of yourself, the way that you have given maybe of finances and of different things. He knows. And I really pray that that encourages you today because sometimes as life goes on and if things change, we can feel as though we've been forgotten and people have forgotten what's gone before us, who paved the way for us. A few weeks ago, we talked about the 37 years of this church and I can't help but think of the backs of the people that we're on today in this place. People who've given, people who've gone before us, and the Lord remembers. It appears that our achievements have lesser value than our love for him. It's kind of a weird thought, isn't it? Because I know in our culture, achievements is about everything, right? We put them on our wall. But Jesus is looking at Ephesus, and he's saying, this I have against you. You have allowed your heart and your love to grow cold. And so how, how are we going to break this up? And I, I think that we can simply look at it this way. <clears throat> First of all, remember. This is what he says. This is, I'm, just, I'm just using three simple words that he uses out of Revelation 2. Remember. Remember where you have fallen. In order to be restored, we have to remember and know where we have been. Where we have fallen short. Remembrance leads us to confession. We need to remember where we've been. Where were you when your heart began to grow cold? You need to get back to that place where you need to be. Secondly, repent Repentance steps past remembrance and it brings change. Repentance is more than being sorry. Repentance turns away from and friends, there is no shortcut to repentance. Lastly, do. The forgiven must now do that which was done in the very beginning. And it really seems like Ephesus was really doing well. They were doing so well. But Jesus looks directly at them and gives them this word and says, this is what you need to do. You need to get your heart back where it was, and I want you to remember where your heart was when you fell in love with me. Remember that. What were you doing at that time? So church, let me ask you, if you've been a follower of Jesus Christ and you remember where your heart and your love was for Jesus, what were you doing at that time? You need to remember that. And maybe, just maybe, church, some of us need to repent and we need to make a change. We need to make a change so we can be where we were when we were in love with Jesus the worship team's going to come up and lead us in just a, a very powerful, strong that is in agreement with this message today. And I believe it's just really going to bless us today. 
Because I, I, during this song, I just want this to be a time of response for us and worship. <clears throat> Our world is, is quite wicked, isn't it? You cannot avoid it. There is no way around it. If you watch the news, it's exhausting. It's hard to keep up. But I believe that Jesus is showing us what he desires for his churches. And I don't know about you, but I, I think we should care a whole lot more about what Jesus is saying to Ephesus and to us today than what the world around us is telling us how we should look, how we should live. So I'm going to just look at, have us look at something that I think is quite cool here. So generally, the way that tree is defined is this word dendron. And so the tree of life, just the word tree is this word. But twice, tree is talked about in xylon, this, this Greek word xylon. And in both cases, it's talking about a dead tree. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, everyone who is hung on a xylon, the cross, the dead, a dead tree. When we, when we look at the last verses, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Tell him who overcomes, I will give him the right to eat from the tree of Zylon. Not the tree of life, but the dead tree of life, which is the cross of Jesus Christ. Your first love needs to be with your head bowed at the cross of Jesus Christ. Your love will only come from there. Your love will only come from there. For you to return to your first love, you first must return to the cross. Would you please stand? You've been listening to a message from Life Assembly. Connect with us online at lifemn.org. And thanks for listening.